Yeah. You know, if you want to give someone a real buzz kill, they come to you and they're like, Hey, uh, I got $20,000. How should I invest that? And you're like, uh, you shouldn't, yeah, you should invest it in yourself. All of my grandparents think I'm unemployed. Like just, they're, they're like, where's, where's Connor right now? Oh, over in Portugal. Oh, like, is he just like going to get a job after college? My parents are like, no, he does this like real estate stuff and some e-commerce things as well. Um, and they're like, oh, so like, he's not like, he'll get a job one day though. Right. And I'm just like, it's not ideally not hopefully never. You know, what's funny. I've struggled this with this for years. You know, when it changes for them, take them to Portugal. That's when they get it. That's when they get it. You're listening to the Next Generation Podcast, weekly interviews with the most interesting and successful 20-somethings out there. All right, we are live with Dan Andrews. Dan, how are you doing today, man? Very good, guys. Thanks for the invite. Of course. We have a podcast professional on the studio, in the studio right now. Um, Dan, you've been podcasting since, correct me if my number is wrong here, 2009? That's right. Yeah. So Gio and I were 12 in 2009. Uh, so <laughs> nice. this is going to be like, you, you're about to just drop <laughs> wisdom bomb after wisdom bomb here. Um, Dan, the host of, a co-host of TMBA, Tropical MBA Podcast. Um, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, when it was first started, it was called the Lifestyle Business Podcast. That's right. Yeah. Cool. Um, I think it's obvious to some people now, like why the benefits of podcasting in 2022 and like why people would want to see it start it, right? Like they see like the Joe Rogans and, and the Tim Ferrisses of the world. And it's very obvious. When it was 2009, I got to imagine it was a totally different environment world. And like the idea of even telling your friends, hey, I'm, I'm going to speak into a mic for 45 minutes and then publish on this thing called the internet. Maybe the internet was more relevant then. But what what was the inspiration for you to even go and get started back then? Um, and then I would love to kind of start diving into like how it evolved over the last decade plus. Sure. Yeah. You guys like one, one of these days, it's going to happen. You're going to hear from every old guy. You're just going to wake up and you're going to be old. Like... You're going to try to make a cut on the basketball court or something, and you're just not going to be able to keep up. And you're like, shit, this is my time. Uh, yeah, the inspiration for me was I was living in Southern California, and I had a, a two-hour daily commute, like one hour up, one hour back down the five highway. Um, and I was really struggling with my job, not only because I was like, is this it? Is like this why I went to school? Like... I'm broke, you know, I'm going to have to spend all my week working and then half of my weekend doing my laundry. This sucks. And also my job is like kind of interesting because it's super challenging. So I might as well like learn about how I can be better on the way up and down the highway. And so it started with audiobooks, and then podcasts presented themselves, you know, back then it was like, I got a podcast as a annual bonus from my boss, not a podcast, a, uh, they don't even exist anymore. What do they call them? The freaking Apple cassette. (laughs) I know, uh, pod, uh, yeah. An ancient history. It used to be not on your phones, right? You'd have like, uh, it was like Apple's coolest product. I can't even remember what it's called. You're talking about the iPod? The iPod. There you go. Like, we're talking, we're talking like a, little, a little, a little like nano shuffle or something. Well, so what he got me was like the brick one. Oh yeah. Those those are like cool. 300, I don't know, 300 yeah. gigabytes or whatever it was. And I just like loaded that fucker up and what podcasts felt like in 2009 were like secrets, like access <laughs> to like access is sort of taken for granted now. You know, you can like fire up the all in pod. It's like, oh, there's a billionaire like telling us about what he did this weekend. But I think the thing about that moment in time without the ubiquity of social media, I remember there's this dude like 
he was in upstate New York and he ran an SEO agency and he would like have this like really gritty little pod and he'd be like, this is what we're doing for our clients this week to rank in Google. And I'd be like, shit, rank in Google. That sounds amazing. Like, and so when I get to the office and I'd be like, we're going to rank in Google, everybody. And everybody'd be like, this damn dude is crazy. (laughs) Yeah. And so that's what a podcast felt like back in 2009. It's crazy too. Cause like, I don't think, I think Snapchat literally launched in like 2011, just to like put it into perspective for like some of the younger listeners too. So like quite literally, like in terms of even getting listeners, was your goal to basically go and start this podcast and just share the things that you were doing and you were working on as you kind of got started. And then like, I would imagine there's nowhere you can even really share it for the most part, maybe friends and family on Facebook and things like that. Dude, I don't even think Facebook had a feed at that time. The Facebook feed was a thing. Oh, really? So you can, you can drop the link on someone's wall or something like that. Maybe go to like your friend's wall and <laughs> your friend would be like, what, what's, what's a podcast? It's like Dan just keeps on poking me and posting his podcast episodes on my wall. Well, if you like search for business podcasts in the Apple ecosystem at the time, there, there wasn't that many. So mm-hmm. that's part of it. Um, mm-hmm. well, was there like a moment though where, where you're, where you're driving, you're hearing all these podcasts and you're like, Hey, I want to, I want to do this. Or, yeah. or when did that, when did that click actually happen? I used to skip school in high school to listen to the Howard Stern show. And then I, when I worked in factories, like everybody would stand around and like listen to these long form radio shows. Okay. And, and I guess I think I was an audio listener or learner. And I just always was passionate about it. And when it crossed over to be like, man, like there's like really useful information coming through. It just all clicked for me. At the time, there was a really influential business podcast called Internet Business Mastery. Mm. And they, everybody listened to them. Like everybody that now exists in that space, like Smart Passive Income, or you name your like internet marketing podcast, they were listening to that show. And they were great. And they talked about a lot of kind of Dan Kennedy stuff. Like how you make money on the internet is by teaching other people how to make money on the internet. See how I did that? (laughs) Buy my course. Yeah. And, but it was great still, but I was like, wait, I make money on the internet selling cat furniture. So the, this dude's like, it's completely different worlds. I even launched a cat furniture e-commerce site that was like a long form sales letter because yeah. I listened to so much Dan Kennedy shit on the internet. Did so it, it was like, like the five bonuses, like the value, like you would do like yeah. a real estate MLM or something. Like that's how I was selling my cat furniture for a hot couple months. The whole time, like the sticky nav bars, like dragging down as you're scrolling with a countdown timer of how much longer <laughs> the offer is going to go for. <laughs> totally. It was after my first time abroad in Vietnam, my first stint, like really doing the digital nomad thing. I came back and I was like, there is nobody talking about doing this from e-commerce, like literally nobody. Mm. Everybody's talking about make money online. And so I was like, this is our time. Like we need to fire up the mics and do our own pod. And so, yeah, there's no way to really grow it at the time. It was basically like if 15 people listen, that's a win. Because yeah, it's more than are listening right now. So, and I, I would imagine it's probably a very uh, quality over quantity type of audience back then too, right? Like the people who are like actually going to learn things via podcast is very different from the people who are like, oh, everyone's listens to podcasts, so I'll just throw it in on my normal commute or walk. Now it's like people who are like internet marketers actively seeking things out. Yeah. Um, I'd love to maybe know. Like, I got this, this question from somebody the other day who just started listening to our podcast. They're like, oh, like how much money are you making with your podcast? And like. Honestly, for us, we don't, we don't even spend any money, time or energy trying to find ads or anything like that. So like candidly, like we lose over $10,000 a year on this podcast, uh, yeah. but I'm, I'm kind of fine with it because it allows us to meet really interesting people. And in my opinion, we have substantially more opportunity that comes from our result from creating the content and meeting the individuals um, sure. than we ever would from like, say, hey, great, a couple hundred bucks to like toss an ad slot in each episode. 
Um, but I would love to maybe know over the last like 13 plus years of, of running TMBA, like what have been some of the coolest opportunities that have maybe come out of running the podcast that um, aren't necessarily just like the content itself? Yeah. I mean, one is our CTO for Dynamite Jobs, which is our hiring platform. So, you know, everybody talks about one of the biggest problems for marketers is having access to like that tech startup opportunity. And because he had listened to us for so many years and he actually got his last gig as a co-founder of Lead Pages under Clay Collins based on our last job board, you know, over years we built that trust where he was willing to come and like share his career with us. So for two and a half years now we've had a CTO. I think that's like kind of uh, enormous and would have been really tough to um, predict in advance. Mm -hmm. um, we talked about the guy who connected us, Alan Walton, you know, um, he just out of the kindness of his heart, like booked me a points ticket to Bangkok in a few weeks. I'm going to fly on this really nice, fancy flight. And no, every sure. year he gives away a scholarship to someone to fly to our conference in Bangkok, just because he wants to like watch somebody else appreciate what he appreciates, you know, like That's that cool. experience of meeting other entrepreneurs. So there's a lot of like that Alan Walton story. I could probably sit here and like maximize the whole pod with like this kind of virtuous cycle of just people being good to each other and like wanting to accelerate each other's success. Was, was there any specific motivation in the beginning other than, Hey, we just want to, you know, kind of chat about this stuff publicly was the goal at one point to make money, to get sponsorships. Um, or what did that really initial kind of, you know, multi-year long goal look like if there was one? I, I'm not sure what the actual truth is, but I think when I joined Internet Business Mastery, I remember doing the math on how much money they were making from their membership. And I remember also thinking, similar to what you guys are doing here, is like, this isn't for me. Like, this mm -hmm. isn't me. Mm -hmm. I, I don't, you know... I don't buy this. I don't buy that this is what business is. Like my brand of business is like realer. It's, you know, something different. It's a different culture, you know? And you guys are mentioning, you're listening to older guys on podcasts talking about their culture. You know, it's like not yours. So you guys mm -hmm. get the opportunity to find. I had a lot of mentors, not a lot, like people that were older than me that thought I was ridiculous. Like specifically said, you can't do that. Like you can't run a business that, allows you to like do whatever you want. Like that's not, that's not real. Like, and this is coming from people who went to like the best business schools in the country. I won't even name mm -hmm. the business school, but you all, it's the best. Yeah. And they're saying like, not possible to do what you did. But so, they, they probably also kind of feel a little bit, you know, embarrassed to some extent if you're making the same, same amount of money they are and, and, and traveling and maybe not working a hundred hours a week. But, but I think the tough part too is like, it's so dramatically different. Like, yeah. like all of my grandparents think I'm unemployed. Like just, they're, they're, they're like, where's, where's Connor right now? Oh, over in Portugal. Oh, like, is he just like going to get a job after college? My parents are like, no, he does this like real estate stuff and some e-commerce things as well. Um, and they're like, Oh, so like, he's not like, he'll get a job one day though. Right. And I'm just like, it's not ideally not hopefully never. You know, it's um, funny. I've struggled this, with this for years. You know, when it changes for them, take them to Portugal. That's when they get it. That's when they get yeah, it. Yeah. Right. And I say, as soon as you're, you're the ones the ones who went to Portugal and they're like, let me tell you what Connor's up to over there in yeah. Portugal. He's crushing it. And they'll, yeah. Then they'll be the mouthpiece. <laughs> oh, exactly. Um, I know, I know, Dan, right now, like we're diving deep into like the podcast stuff itself, just because like I'm such a such a fan of your show. Um, but I would love to know too, like, so you have you guys have 
shoot, I had a note somewhere around here. It was like 590, 600 episodes out, something like that at this point. Yeah. So you've been, you have literally a thousand plus hours of audio from your entire career, like over the last decade plus, which in my mind, that's going to be so freaking cool. Like, like, I don't know, I'm, I'm thinking like long-term, like the biggest leaders and like, um, like any business owners or like emperors and all this kind of stuff had really not much content like around their life. Now we're at this point where like you can document everything from like the greatest athletes and what their training protocols were to like entrepreneurs who also like to go and travel and like what they were learning at the time. Like that's a really cool element. Um, but you have this big career that's like outside of just the podcast itself, like the cat furniture stuff you're talking about, the dynamite uh, circle, the dynamite jobs that you guys are growing for the job board stuff. Could you maybe like, sounds embarrassing to almost ask, but like, can you like distill like roughly what that last 10 years has kind of looked like outside of the podcast world for you um, yeah. in like, you know, a couple of minutes? I started hiring people overseas in order to survive. Like we couldn't compete with other people hiring Californians. So we're like, well, fuck it. I guess we got to hire people in Vietnam and the Philippines. We'd already been switched on to it because we were manufacturing abroad. You know, there's, I think it's interesting. Like you guys probably have like a pretty clear thesis on how you make an investment, right? Like we're going to look at 10 different opportunities. And like, these are the two that jump off the page for us. We used to do that with manufacturing products in China. You know, we had a checklist, like, does it break down in shipping? You know, are the margins this, like the same kind of thing. Basically, we were doing contract manufacturing at the time, and we were like, that's dumb. We should do a product and sell it a thousand times over. And so the first product that really hit for us was valet parking podiums. Mm -hmm. And at the time we started the podcast, we were one of the largest valet parking podium manufacturer in the world. In fact, me and Alan Walton went to a hotel last night and my damn parking podium, uh, I regret selling that business. That was a really dumb decision. I actually wrote a book about it to try to monetize my pain called Before the Exit. There we go. That's my new addition there. But um, basically, we were running this industrial furniture business. We were making it in China. We were marketing it in Manila. And we were living in Asia and Europe. And we were like, this is dope. Like, let's make a podcast about it. And essentially, the gonzo quality of like every week we would show up to the podcast and be like, this is, I think, what we know about business, maybe. And then sometimes we would interview like people that we knew, like that were sitting next to us in the cafe, but it wasn't like now where you like get another podcaster on and it's like a thing. It was mm -hmm. just like, we're doing it every week, kind of when we have time. Yeah. And over time that just led to what were these kind of ended up being services for entrepreneurs in the end. Like we did a lot of parties, a lot of get togethers, a lot of seminars, a lot of hiring services. And so of course the podcast beget this whole incredible community of what I felt were people that were doing this legitly. So we don't allow people that are, you know, we just have pretty strict guidelines of who we let into that group and who we sought out in our community. So like you said, the high quality audience, definitely. I think 80% of our listeners, at least that replied to the survey are entrepreneurs, they're business mm -hmm. owners. So I'm, I'm fascinated by this podium thing now. Um, Sure. How, how large <laughs> did you guys end up getting that business? And was it, was it all just direct to valet companies? Or what does it even look, look like? I always love like the unique businesses yeah, that no one ever about. thinks about. You're not, yeah. you're not, I mean, it's probably even before drop shipping really, but. It, it, yeah, we ended up actually business. starting a few drop shipping stores and selling them via Empire Flippers Marketplace. Um, mm -hmm. You can check out um, basically what. The valet spot. Yeah. These, uh, these random niches that we would find 
as like a Venn diagram of like what we think is a good investment opportunity, what has good keyword research on Google, and then what we can actually manufacture. Um, That's so funny. I'm just, it says the valetspot.com for anyone listening to this yeah. right now, but we're just, G and I are just scrolling through. And so what's cool is that these are all very high ticket things as well. So like, if you're selling like yeah. a $2,000 kiosk, that's pretty awesome. Yeah. And so we got this business just shy of $4 million in revenue. Mm-hmm. And um, it was, it was interesting. I mean, we didn't really know what we were doing. We were just, you know, learning on the fly. And that was part of what the pod story was about. And that's, if I'm being completely honest, the podcast was probably better in those early days because there was such a, a gonzo quality. As you get older, maybe you get a little bit less confident to share your story. I've noticed that like, there's more mm-hmm. qualifications in my mind because like, well, maybe this, when I was like 28, I was like, yo, I learned this thing. It's the best thing I did it. It was amazing. You should do it too. You know, and there's a, there's a lot yeah. of that quality to the podcast that I think was positive. Um, and part of, part of it's the risk reward too, right? It's like maybe now sharing a lot of the stuff, maybe you have more to lose. Like if you find this incredible keyword opportunity of a product, yeah. like maybe you're less likely to go and I want to go and talk For about sure. it, but is it, and just to clarify too, I know you, you guys sold a business back in 2015. Was it this one? The business in 15 that we wrote the book about was the valet spot and two other related okay. brands. Um, the most important one for the, for the listeners to check out would be the portable bar company. If they want to get a sense for the portable bar company. Oh, cool. And is that just like pop-up bars and stuff like that? Yeah, like we, bar we cards? clients that actually like Sheraton um, and Aramark and, and like concession companies and hotels. Big guys, yeah. yeah. The people would want to host a party on the rooftop deck and they need a need a bar. So yeah. Now it's, it sounds like you regret selling. My my question was gonna be if you do regret it. it sounds I like do. you do. Yeah, we um, pretty much regret it. Can you talk about why? Yeah. Um I think it was a bad financial deal, is the primary reason. Like I didn't really okay. understand uh how the financialization of these assets worked. I just thought, mm-hmm. man, someone wants to put over a million dollars in my bank account. I was like, you know yeah. what I mean? I was like always broke, always, always broke. Like yeah. I especially in the product business where like you're just buying more inventory all yeah. the time. Yeah. Like I don't remember exactly when I paid off my college debt, but I'm pretty sure it wasn't 2015. I don't remember exactly like I kept that one going, you know. Um and so the idea that I was going to get that kind of money was really yeah, appealing. And we also had another business at the time. But in retrospect, I realized that it's pretty common for people in the market with money to, you know, find founders like this that are tired, old, sick, incompetent, you know, in bad financial situations or whatever, and take these things off their hands. There's also, um, you know, a trough of sorrow that exists between like two, $3 million and getting to that eight figure level. You really have to transition to um, a different sort of entrepreneur, typically. Sometimes you have a flyer and it takes off, but typically what I've noticed is that execution matters a lot. And like that creative hustle, early days stuff doesn't translate as well when you have 15 employees and it's about alignment and process and things like that, leadership. Mm. And I think all of that really daunted us. Like, oh man, we're gonna have to be leaders. Like this was supposed to be like a Tim Ferriss thing, you know? And uh, uh, we have a warehouse. Yeah, wait, wait, wait a second. You're saying we have to work more than four hours this Yeah, week? <laughs> like that fifth hour hurts, you know? And then on the other hand, it's like, <laughs> we got a podcast and we're throwing parties in Bali. And like, that just seemed like um, a better idea at the time. In retrospect, yeah. um, it was a little immature, I think, to just kind of cash out without really 
getting that idea in front of smarter people that had been through it before. And that's why I wrote the book. I was like, yo, what's going to happen is you're going to get sick of running this business. You're going to realize it's worth a shit ton of money. And then you're going to call up a business broker who's going to kiss your ass and make you seem like you're the smartest person, you know, and you feel dumb every day in your business. Cause like, man, my staff is quitting. Like what's going on here. And then the business broker is like, you're a fucking genius, Connor. Yeah. You're, you guys are, you guys are geniuses. Yeah. And then they put a million bucks in front of you and you're like, okay, let's do this thing. You know? And that was a, that was a bad move. What did you guys end up doing with the money or, you know, was there a game plan of, Hey, we have all this money coming in. We're going to go reinvest into maybe some of the events and the other companies you're doing, or let's just take chips off the table and we'll figure let's it chips out off the table. After. And I really, that's a great question. I really wish we would have had a plan in advance about why we needed money, how much, right? One of the things, um, you know, that I wrote about in the book that Jason Cohen turned me on to is this idea of nonlinear relativity or nonlinear utility of money. So if you have $0 and I give you 20 grand, it's life-changing. But if you have 20 grand and you get another 20 grand, it's like, I'm kind of in the same spot, like the same kind of level. You know, what I realized is like when I got the million dollars, like nothing changed because I didn't know mm. about the stuff that you guys know about. Like had I been switched on as a property investor, perhaps, and I wanted to do that stuff. Maybe I could have got myself a couple townhomes and fixed them up or whatever. But like that, was, I just, they went into index funds, you know? So nothing changed. My spending level, extra guacamole at Taco Deli, but that's it. <laughs> <laughs> extra guac, double, double protein. I still always, I still always make them put the original scoop before 100%. telling them double. So that way they don't compromise the overall portions knowing that it's double. It's, it's, it's just literally game theory every time I go to Chipotle. Um, but I, I would, I would be really curious too. Like, I know it's different for every person. Do you have like a rough idea in your mind of like what those steps and what those numbers are? Because I completely agree that like, you know, getting an extra million dollars in the bank, I'm probably not spending my money dramatically differently today. Um, 10 million. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Like, like for me, for me, the numbers are different. I'd be curious to hear how that looks for you, whether it's like a step game or how it looks. This is like my favorite cocktail party conversation, you know, like oh, yeah. um, the one in the book that was like, we were kind of at and didn't get out of was what we were calling financial platform. So that's when you have like at least a couple hundred grand in the bank, you have like kind of a high lifestyle run rate. So you're kind of spending all, you know, there's not really like things that you want in life. Like you can go skiing, you can go to Europe, you can do all that. And then you have the asset. And so typically mm -hmm. financial deals of assets will be forward you three times earnings plus inventory or four times earnings, maybe during the pandemic, five or six times earnings. So one of the ideas in the book is like, well, maybe just put like a, GO, uh, a GM or a COO in charge and maybe they're kind of mediocre, but who cares? Like, you're still going to get your money back in four or five years and you're going to be like at square zero and you still have the asset. Um, a next level that I think is really fascinating is, and this level changes depending on your target asset class, but when you get out of the retail investor class. Um, so what, what, do, like, what do you mean with that? So when you can have a disposable income to throw at interesting deals that don't get um, presented to retail investors. In other words, you don't have to like go out and work for your deals, but people will come up to you because they know you have like a couple mil liquid and be like, hey, we're doing a, you know, a 50 unit retail thing here, or we're doing a collateralized debt financing deal here. 
my business mentor suggests that that pops up for him around like 3.5 million liquid in the bank. Mm. The most common lifestyle line or um, basically like the line at which financial questions disappear for a lifetime. The most common answer I hear is 10 million liquid. Okay. Is that, so does that mean 10 million liquid with additional money coming in every month or cause, cause that's always been, you know, like you, you, you just have the money. Sitting now in the you're talking about cash flows versus yeah. cash piles. And, and, and one of the things I realized is like, okay, so maybe when we sold that business, I was making like a salary of like a quarter million a year or something like that. And then I got the million something for it. And I was like, Ooh, that doesn't feel like <laughs> yeah. a quarter million a year goes to zero. Now, if I just don't do anything, I mean, these are basic concepts in retrospect. You guys know all this stuff, but at the time I was like, you know, I got to work hard for oh, that yeah. money, you know, and my, and there's all these like emotional attachments to the business and the problems they're in. And so, yeah, I, I, these are the sorts of things I wish I would have had mentorship about. Read the blog of dollars and data. No. Okay. So the guy, you, you love it. Um, the guy's name is Nick who writes it and I'm totally blanking on his last name. So I'll, we'll try to add it in the show notes later on, but he has this awesome blog post called climbing the wealth ladder. And I kind of like repurposed like it and shared my thoughts on it in, in this newsletter months ago. Um, but he basically said like the, the quote to start it is the Jay-Z quote that goes, what's 50 grand to a motherfucker like me. Can you please remind me? Right. And like his, <laughs> his whole point is like to Jay-Z at the time, his net worth was this. And like 50 grand literally does not mean anything to him. Like he can throw away 50 grand and it is not, he's not losing sleep over it. Right. And so he basically said the levels of wealth, when you want to start thinking about this kind of stuff is, should be defined with quote, how much does a trivial amount of money cost you? Right. And his definition was a trivial amount of money is 0.01% of net worth. Right. And so like to put that into perspective, Ten thousand dollar net worth equals one dollars a trivial amount. You get ten thousand dollars or twenty thousand dollars in your bank account. Nobody thinks twice about buying a piece of gum at a convenience store, right? Like yep. it's just trivial. And so I think what's kind of cool is like you break this down into like six levels. And I think I'm just gonna quote like what he has here, where the first is like you're really living paycheck to paycheck, and that's where like zero to one dollar per decision is something that you kind of think about. The next one is like grocery freedom to some degree, right? And that's like one to nine dollar per decision. Then there's restaurant level freedom, 10 to $100 per decision is a trivial amount. Then there's travel freedom of 100 to 1,000, house freedom of where you want to live, 1,000 wow. to 10,000. And then there's philanthropic freedom, which is like 10,000 plus, right? Um, and so like, I think it gets really interesting going back to your point on like that $10 million net worth at $10 million liquid net worth, the trivial number is essentially $1,000. Being able to spend $1,000 on a flight and not think twice about it is like essentially what the trivial amount. So ten million for. equals one, one ten thousand or one thousand. Um, point zero one percent of ten million is a thousand dollars. So that's okay. like the de- if that's how you want to consider trivial amounts. Um, so I think I, I just like that a lot personally because I think what his whole point is like, listen, if you, if you have you know five hundred thousand dollars in the bank, yeah, sure, still so like go on the ski trip and stuff like that with your friends. Like, don't think about it that concrete. But it becomes an issue when you start treating these big vacations as trivial decisions when you don't have the net worth to back it as like that 0.01% rule. It's fascinating. It's really, this topic, I think is, there's so much to flesh out here. I think Nathan Barry did a good post about it. Yeah, mine were um, being in debt, being broke, basic savings, financial platform, uh, non-retail investor, and then financial questions, the freedom line, uh, which is where 
And you can, of course, everybody can move them around differently. My business partner, Ian, says it. Do you remember when $10 became 100 mm. So he does it that way. Remember like um, when you're like like an eight-year-old kid and you see like a $100 bill and you're like, oh my God. <laughs> and, now, and now you're yeah. like, fuck, did I spend $300 last night on drinks? Like, <laughs> Yeah. I'll, 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 I, there's part of me that feels douchey admitting this, but it's worth it. If I were like 25, I might want to hear a message like this. Like if something's like a hundred dollars on Amazon or something, like I just buy it as if it were, you know, like a, getting a free piece of gum at a, yeah. at a restaurant. You know I, mean? I don't even think yeah. about spending a hundred dollars. Exactly. It's a trivial amount. It's a kind of a freedom that I really desired mm -hmm. when I was 25. That's, I sure. think um, the other thing here that was in Bill Perkins, your other book, die with zero. No, but I've heard a lot about oh, this. I see a grin on your face as if like maybe it's controversial or something. I think we, no, no, no. Okay. he's like a billionaire, right? That's going to give away all his money. Um, I think it, I don't know if it's even about like giving it away. I think he just wants to spend it all. His, his whole point is like every dollar has an amount of life energy associated with it. It's his thing. And like, if you die with all of this money left in your bank account, like you probably worked like five or 10 more years than you should have. And instead you could have been using it to spend with your family and spending your time, et cetera. His other point too mm -hmm. is like, the value of a dollar diminishes the older you get. And so like right now, if you're 25, That's you true. can go like skydiving and skiing or whatever like that. And like those dollars can go be spent on that. If you're 70 years old, you just don't want to go be skiing down double black diamonds. Like it's fine. Like it's, it's not a big deal. Just you have less options of where you can spend that money. Um, but the reason I bring it up is because he has another chapter in the book that kind of talks about how, like if you're making $50,000 a year, you probably shouldn't be going and spending it on like buying index funds. Um, like, cause just the marginal utility of that investment is not going to reap anything, but where people get really cheap is like they spend, like they only have $50,000 a year. And so they'll spend a very conservative amount. And his thought is like, if you are on a career track specifically, maybe call it like the finance world, the consulting world, maybe the business world, if you really feel like confident in yourself and being willing to bet on yourself, spend on like an average means of what you think your 10 year salary could be because it'll go up eventually to the point where like you're not spending much beyond it but you're wasting a lot of time by spending like you only have fifty thousand dollars i think that might be dangerous <laughs> advice but like it's fascinating yeah i've never heard something like that so many different like viewpoints on like how you can go approach the conversation yeah you know if you want to give someone a real buzz kill they come to you and they're like hey uh, i got twenty thousand dollars how should i invest that and you're like uh you should have, yeah, you should invest it in yourself. I mean, not the joke, but like, like if you tell somebody, the, I think the real answer based on what I've seen is that you should invest it in your own education yeah. first and, or your own time. So if you can like buy yourself out of a job, like quit your job for a quarter or whatever you need to do, like, uh, but people don't want to hear or that. Because either, hey, whatever investment they're making, if it's a smart one is going to make what, six to 8% a year. Otherwise you're making an aggressive gamble on, you know, a stock or an options or crypto going in either direction. Yeah. And the, it's either going to go to zero and most likely not the best. Yeah. We did the, we did the math on our return on capital and our valet spot business one time, like over the course of five years or whatever. And it looked like a scam. You know, you just, if you showed it to, it's like, what did you guys do? Like, you know, sell cocaine for five <laughs> years or something? You know, it's, yeah. It's a pretty good uh, return on capital in that sense. So, so. best best options, self-education, business, or Shiba, you know, or come rocket coin. Basically the-, the 100%, <laughs> the yeah. <laughs> 100%, yeah. <laughs> um, on, on that note, maybe kind of diving into, if you have any ideas of our opportunities, what, what you would kind of pitch, maybe a college student, someone graduating- maybe does have that amount of money with the end goal that, hey, they do want to run their own lifestyle, if not slightly bigger company down the road. 
Um, what are your thoughts either kind of maybe going the corporate route, starting on something on their own, and if starting something on their own, what sort of interesting tracks have you seen people take to ideally become that successful entrepreneur down the road? Typically, like, you know, past behavior indic indicates future behavior better than anything else. And so if you take that principle, a lot of the most successful people in our community, and again, like, I... I would love to just see, I maybe have seen in person more four hour work week success stories than any person ever. More than Jim Ferris? Maybe. Probably. I think maybe. I think, I think he's, I he's think, gotten more into like the philosophy and the mentorship stuff more at this point. I think yeah. you're still very- Bigger fish to fry for yeah, him. Yeah, you, you still feel like yeah. tactical. When I listen to your stuff, it still feels like you're in the weeds doing the work kind of the vibe. Yeah. I'm running a small business every day. You know, Tim's sitting on the uh, Uber stuff. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. it's, different, it's a different life, man. Um, one of the maybe not fun pieces of advice, aside from the classic stuff, tinker, do a lot of things, 5% yeah, yeah, yeah. hit rate on shit, all that. Go work for world-class people. And so whether that's like find your San Francisco, whatever that is, and try to do it in a smaller organization if you can um, and then try to get your hands on the actual work. Mm -hmm. I see a high correlation from people coming from elite institutions and then building elite institutions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I don't necessarily mean go to McKinsey or something like that. I mean, like, go work for that crazy startup or that real estate investor or whatever it is. Typically, what you're going to do is reproduce the results on your own. Yeah, we, so. we, had a, we had a pretty big real estate investor, Moses Kagan, on the show maybe like 20 episodes ago. And yeah. his advice, somewhat similar, was basically like, if you want to be good, especially on like the financial modeling side and like really know like what quality standards look like at the highest level, just go work for Goldman. He's like, it's like shitty, obvious advice. He's like, by the end of the day, you working at an institution like that raises the bar as opposed to you not even knowing where the bar should be, right? Like maybe, maybe you're going and starting your own thing. You're like, great, I'm going to make 20 cold calls a day. And then you go to, or you start off at Goldman. They're like, we need you to make a hundred cold calls a day. Like you don't even know where you should be thinking about with this kind of stuff. It's like that uh, thing everybody says, like, welcome to the NFL. Like yeah. you get out there on the field and like, you just can't believe the explosiveness and the aggression mm -hmm. or, you know, we've all had experiences like, like I'm a cyclist, you know, I moved to Europe and I started like riding with like semi-pro European riders and it, like it completely expanded what I thought was possible for a cyclist. Like it blew my mind. Yeah. It's like, you guys like ride that fast for four hours. I can't, that's like a sprint, but you're doing it for four hours. It's, it's similar to the whole community thing too, though, right? We end up just surrounding ourselves with people that make significantly more money or, or have more success on, on podcasts, whatever. You surround yourself with, with people light years ahead. All of a sudden our bar changes. It's like, oh, okay. I don't, I don't really just want to make, you know, 10 grand a month. I don't, now I don't want to make a hundred grand a month. It's like, all right, now <laughs> that number is going up or whatever. And it significantly helps to, um, yeah, you look at what they've done to be successful and kind of gives you that motivation as well. Yeah, I mean, if that principle applies, like the closest to your five friends or average of your five closest mm -hmm. friends, then you can even accelerate it if you're actually working with them every day. So, you know, my buddy Noah runs a $100 million company, but like his formative years were spent with Zuckerberg. Is the you know? Noah Kagan? Yeah, and like my formative years were spent in like a shitty manufacturing company, <laughs> you know? And like... He, because he was in that environment, he learned more faster, mm. you know? And I think that's uh, something that people can leverage in their careers is like, if you have this like entrepreneurial, I'll work for less, I'll move there, I'll do it, get it done stuff. Um, that's like so rare out there in the candidate marketplace yeah. that you'll be able to get yourself a, a dream job. 
hang on to it for a couple of years. And then that person will support you that, that group will support you in your future going forward. I will say, uh, I had this conversation with Gio earlier. We're hiring like an operations manager for the real estate stuff right now. And I was like, we went through like hundreds of applications so far. We narrowed it down to a couple that we have last round of interviews with. And it's like, I'm turning, turning to him and I'm like, after going through this applicant pool, it makes me, it's a kind of an ego boost. I was like, I'm feeling pretty good right now. Uh, like just, just knowing where we're at with everything. Well, um, especially when they're just like ridiculously more qualified than both of Connor and I are, yeah. right? It's like, all right, you yeah. have years of experience doing everything we've been doing for the past two years, yeah. past one year. And yeah, it's an interesting dynamic. That's amazing. I, yeah. And that's like, also you can buy it in if you have the, the margin yeah. margins, everything, oh, yeah. you know, I think, um, yeah, the, the one thing I wanted to, we, we're kind of like, I'm going to move on a little bit to some other topics I got written down here. Cause we have a lot. Um, and, and I know limited time. Uh, one thing I did want to say on the sale of the business, the valet stuff. Um, I like the idea of like, okay, is it a life-changing amount of money? First of all, I think that makes a ton of sense. I also think, so you don't know this about us because um, we just met, but Gio and I ran like, it was like a seven figure FBA business while we were in college selling like cell phone accessories, like quite literally like the stuff that holds cards in the back of your phone, that whole vibe. Nice. We sold that business in 2020. And I think from both of our standpoint, um, like the deal itself was good. Like basically we sold it also on empire flippers, like run of the mill, multiple, like three X EBITDA, that kind of vibe. Um, but I think from both of our standpoint, it did two things. One, it gave us like way more credibility trying to have conversations with anyone afterwards. Like Gio had the genius idea of being like, let's just go and get anybody who writes for Forbes to like make an article about this. And we're just like spamming <laughs> publishers. And now like you search our names and like that shows up. And it's like the amount of times that has come up during interviews, it like to us, it was like as simple as talking to some guy in Vermont That's on the phone for 15 minutes. Right. Uh, who was like the publisher, but for everyone else, it's like, Oh, there's this article. I guess before that, you didn't want to publish the fact that you were running a seven-figure business because... Right. And, and also this like in Amazon FBA, there's very little incentive um, to talk about like the right. products you're selling and all of that stuff. I'm sure... Totally. Kind of that, well, that makes sense. So... Yeah, that wasn't... The, I remember I wrote about that even like that wasn't the case for me. I was like expecting people to like throw palm leaves at yeah. me, you know, like you've exited. Yeah. Amazing, dude. No, but it, like, <laughs> no one gave a it shit. Adds, <laughs> it adds just like from, from our standpoint, like, okay, we kind of lost all of our cash flow right afterwards, which is like something that nobody really mm -hmm. talks about on the event of a sale. At least not something that I ever heard people talk about. It's obvious. Totally. Hindsight, but like, it's shocking. This, but what do you do about it? What do we do about it? Yeah. Um, honestly, so this is going to sound ridiculous. I got a job right after college, despite like, like I got a job because I was like, I have no idea where the hell to spend my time. And honestly, I don't know what the hell I want to do. So I started working for a marketer who I really respected and I got like eight, eight months into the job or so. And I'm looking around, I'm like doing the math of how much am I making a year? How much is in my bank account? I was like, I'm going to have to work for the next 15 years to make the same amount of money I have right now. I was like, what am I, what am I doing here? Um, and started investing in real estate and starting some other businesses. But it was like, I think in hindsight, we sold because I didn't want to sell on Amazon. And it was like, it candidly was like a pretty life-changing amount of money at the time. Sure. But I almost would probably never want to sell anything again, unless it was like seriously a ton of money or I had something like as a great backup afterwards. Um, I just think like, early on the momentum helps a lot in like young people's careers. Um, but for me now, I'm like, no, I feel like everything I build now is for keeps. Like I want to just keep it going. Yeah. You know, that's a really common story I hear. Uh, I was talking to Sam Parr about that. He said now he's a build for lifer. Yeah. 
you know, but he had to have that one big pop to get started. And, you know, for me, it's hindsight's 2020, right? I can make a story out of it. Of course, I, I wanted to take the money, mm -hmm. you know, and I did, and it was fine. And I got to focus on what I think are better business models, higher order opportunities. So, um, but I do share that sentiment that I only, I like that heuristic of like, do you want to have it for life? I'd like to build for life and I'd like to build for cash flow. It's, it's also tough in the beginning too, because when, when you're building a lot of these businesses, you have no real understanding of what is a good model? What is a bad model? What are, what are things to look for? We were selling a product that had no intellectual property for the most part, right? We had, we had no real patents. We kind of had copyrights. Um, so there's no real way that we could maintain it long-term either, which kind of did go into that selling decision. I mean, it, it got to the point where we had, we had knockoffs being made of our exact designs within a week of us coming out with a design. Either our factory would turn around and sell the design to someone else. They would try, start selling. I mean, it was, it was a whole thing. Whereas now it's like, okay, we're looking at products. Um, it just gives you an entirely different perspective from personal experience. Okay. Well, what's the bad part about selling a $10 product? You know, the, the yeah. bad part about not having a, a moat around anything you're doing, you know, it's, but you know, for all the millions of like college dorm room startup ideas that are like, I'm going to start a dropship store. I'm going to do this. Like why, what was it about you guys that made it work versus I, <laughs> like, that sounds like a disaster waiting to happen. It sounds like, you know what I mean? I mean, yeah. it, was, it was a relatively simple concept. We just put cool designs on the back before other people did. I think, I think we hmm. had an early opportunity on Amazon and just yeah. after ranking for three to four years, like we just dominated that search. I think if we were still running the business today, I think I don't, I haven't kept in contact with the new owner at all. Very little actually. Um, I don't, I think it's way tougher of a space to do that with right now. We, we also had no idea we wanted to sell on Amazon. We, we just bought the products and figured out, okay, we're going to try to sell them. We started to sell them in the cafeteria at Northeastern, we walked through the Boston Marathon trying to sell them out of our backpack, just like walking <laughs> up to people. It does not work Sweet. at all. <laughs> I like I like what you were saying though, in terms of like different op business opportunities and with the whole build for lifer kind of mentality. The nice part about that is if somebody makes you an incredible offer, you can always still take it, right? But I think it changes your mentality yeah. of like I know a lot of people who are building a business right now solely with the intention to sell. And they sacrifice a lot of pay during the actual time of building it. They like all talk about like, great, if revenue drops for one month, it, it like, it looks terrible when you want to go and sell it later on. If you're building it and you have zero intentions on selling your ultimate goal every single month is what it should be in a business, just purely profitability. And you can make decisions Health. that can kind of be yeah. a little bit more extended on that timeline. I mean, from my perspective at the very least is dynamite jobs and dynamite circle. Those are two big things right now. Yeah, actually, we just started a new site uh, called remotefirstrecruiting.com. Oh, cool. So what we've done is we've figured out that, you know, a job board audience is a lot different than a recruiting firm audience. In, in what and ways? On our podcast. Well, so typically like a job board's best client profile is going to be a mid-market company. Mm. Somebody who needs like a, they have like in-house recruiting. And they're like hiring like 20 of X types of people every year. And they just know, like, I'm a sales company. I need salespeople, blah, blah, blah. And there's like a person that sits in that company that like has this whole process. Well, now you guys, if you guys need to hire a COO or an executive assistant or something, you might be like, I hired one last year, but it didn't really work out. And now I got to hire one now. And you come to my job site, you're like, great. You guys got like 200,000 candidates and like all these, but like, what's the job ad? And like, you know, what country should I hire? And like all that, you know, we don't have an um, HR person and, either. That's got, that's doing interviews. Every right. Day. Or it's your project manager doing it and they hire like 10 times a year. So that's what remote first recruiting is all about is basically like 
just call our senior recruiter and like, we'll build out a strategy for you. We'll make sure you get your stuff up on the best job boards. So we're like job board agnostic in our recruiting firm. Like we'll post it on DJ for free, mm-hmm. obviously, but we might need to go post it at Indeed or we work remotely or something like that, depending on the skill set and stuff. So we were seeing this like tension in the company. And so we just broke it out as of like two days ago. Oh, cool. So the, these seem like the way better businesses to be running compared to the valet, the cat furniture, like all of that stuff. Am I right in saying that? I know that I know that every business has problems for what it's worth. Like, yeah, I, I'm not saying I'm not yeah. saying it's easy by any means, but like economics, no. scaling it. Like, what are your thoughts? What I like is like uh, the customer base. So like it's yeah, like mm-hmm. there's like you guys could be clients someday versus dealing with like these premier parking companies, you know, that are kind of like wrangling their label <laughs> labor force and. You know, I was speaking with a client the other day, um, Brennan, who runs a, a, a Murphy Beds company that's like eight figures. You should have him on. He's amazing. Um, it's called Lori cool. Murphy Beds or Lori Wall Beds. And uh, he was like telling me the story of like, he hired this woman in Seattle. She's completely revolutionized his business. He went to her wedding, like these kinds of like virtuous cycle things versus like I found in the industrial furniture space, you tend to be dealing with like mid-level employees who don't love their jobs, who like don't love your product, who are being treated poorly by their boss. And it, it's just a bad time. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just kind of, yeah, just bad vibes all around. Like if the, if the business KPI is vibes, it's just substantially lower than the other Like I took Alan out to dinner last night to thank him for like being a great customer and for helping me out with my flight and stuff. And then he wrote me this morning. He's like, he gave me a great business idea. He's like, you know what? If you guys did this, you know, like that's fun. That's fun. Yeah. That's yeah. so cool. Yeah. And, and you surround yourself with really good yeah. people. Um, cool. I know we're kind of wrapping up on time here. There's damn, I have so much more that I want to get into, but uh, the one that I have here that I think you have a really good post on and you've had a good episode on too, that I liked. And I think it's very relatable for people who are maybe starting something new or want to start something new here. Can you explain what your thousand day rule is to listeners? Yeah. So I was at a pool party in Bali uh, back in 2012. As, as one does. We actually rented a villa in downtown Seminyak. For those that know Bali, we spent, we had four bedrooms and like a Zen garden and a pool for $17,000 a year. So it was, it was like Ooh. life. It was, a, it was a really special year. And we would host these parties every weekend That's and all cool. these entrepreneurs would come around. And one of them is one of my mentors, David McKeegan, who runs Greenback Tax Services, this amazing business. And he's really smart and he's taught me a lot. And I was like, David, like people can read the internet, right? Why isn't everybody here? Like why? I was just like this kind of like very naive (laughs) thought, like you can do this, you should do it. Like what the hell is everybody doing anything else for? And he's like, the reason I believe is because people aren't willing to take a step back for three years in their lives. People, um, that go get a good college degree and they have good career opportunities. They're not willing to be broke for three years. And often that's what it takes. And so the idea of the thousand day principle was an exploration and an expectation setting of if you do have to hustle and eat ramen and uh, not, you know, go to every single wedding that you get invited to or do all these things that a lot of people think are natural, right? Like, Oh my God, my wedding budget is $11,000 a year and I'm 28. What is that? Uh, who, who, who wants to spend 15% of their annual take home on, you know, going to other people's weddings. These are the kinds of sacrifices you might need to consider making if you want to get a business off the ground. It helps to move abroad for that stuff, by the way. Um, but, uh, 
the seventeen thousand dollar a year Seminyak. Yeah, bills. yeah. Which, for what a small side note, I think they're way. Oh my more god, dude! Now, like it's uh, that that same villa like, now would be, I mean, fifty. I don't know. I, I would love for someone to yeah, write in a lot. and say, but um, the, the the basic idea is like maybe that's not true in your case. Maybe you can get it done in one year and you can reproduce what you'd make at a professional salary in your own business with a GM or somebody running it. That's the idea of the thousand day principle. It'll take you three years to get the same amount of money from a professional career that you have a business fully running and somebody running it that you can leave for say two or four weeks and the thing doesn't fall apart. And the, the basic idea is like, this stuff is hard, but not that hard. I think a lot of people think that they can do it nights and weekends uh, for six to 12 months and that they can build that kind of cash for themselves. Maybe you can, but it's not the average. The average is something more like three years of full-time effort. That's the idea. Yeah. No, I think, I think it's really well said. I think um, it's also like that delayed gratification that I think a lot of people talk about, like the whole marshmallow test. I don't know if, if anyone's yeah. not familiar with the marshmallow test. The idea of like an eight-year-old gets a marshmallow, the surveyor steps outside of the room and says, hey, if you wait you know, an extended period of time, I'll come back in and you'll get another one. Or you can eat it right now and you don't get another one. You know, later, you know what the best right? entrepreneur like the does? Idea. Eats the marshmallow and then convinces all the other kids to give them the marshmallow. <laughs> <laughs> Smart. I, I have not heard that. I like that way more though. Yeah, but like the, the idea that you're willing to kind of eat shit for a little bit in order to go and eat caviar down the line, right? It's like you yeah. can kind of um, like push that satisfaction down the road. I think that makes sense. Yeah. And part of what we did in those early days was we made status symbols out of things like we called it the entrepreneur mobile. It's like a fully paid off car that is a beater basically because you're all your money is going back <laughs> yeah. to your staff, like paying your COO more than you pay yourself. That's a status symbol. Like hmm. let's make this idea of like building assets and building great businesses, the status symbol, not, you know, like I'm putting up my vacation and watch on Instagram, even though like a basic right. accounting of the numbers would suggest that I'm completely broke. And so there's no status to yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. Well, walk around Miami, you'll see a lot of that. Uh, <laughs> um, man, this has been awesome, Ben. I, I wish we could go on for longer, um, but I want to be respectful of your time. Uh, if people want to go and check out the companies you're building, the content you're putting out, where can they go? Yeah, tropicalmba.com. Just subscribe to the pod and you'll hear us wobble, waffle on about all of our shit every week. So, um, and yeah, I appreciate so cool. that. I actually have a, one of the themes of our show this year is, you know, because I don't have a strong corporate background is uh, going through scaling up coaching by somebody who does, by a multi-time mm. entrepreneur. And so that's one of the themes we're talking about is like, once you get to like kind of 10 plus employees, like, it, it's hard to be a leader. I find it, it doesn't come naturally. Mm. So yeah, that's why I have to get off the phone is to, to go to coach, get coached. <laughs> there we go, man. Guys, this has been great. I'm really impressed by what you're building. It's actually uh, quite special relative to what's out there. So keep doing it. Yeah. Thank Appreciate you so much. It. Thank that you. means a lot. Right. From you. Hopefully we'll talk soon. Bye. See you, man.